everybody. It's that time again. It's time for you to join Dan and I on this wild ride we call The Weird. Oh my god, what was that? That was me being euphoric. I've never heard you happy before. That's the first time I've ever heard joy in your voice. It wasn't joy. It was just like excitement. I'm excited. Well, I've, and I've often said this to many people, uh, a lot of listeners will reach out to me directly and they ask, what's it like to work with Riley? And I say, it's like working with a dead person. He's dead inside. I hate you so hard right now. He's dead inside. Just drink your wine and start crying. David and Gary from Bhutan are really worried about you. Mm-hmm. Drink your wine. Go ahead. So we, we should note, uh, dear listener, and apologize if there was any technical issues that you with the recording that uh, A, it's in part because we were having internet issues and B, Riley does not know how to edit podcasts. You were talking about last week's episode, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not this one. Well, no, because it hasn't happened yet. No, I don't. I, I mean, I might be able to see in the future, but I might not. If you could see into the future, you wouldn't have made the choices you've made. Yeah. Have you ever thought about that, by the way? Like if you'd made different choices, how different, simple little oh, things. fuck yeah. If you'd done this one little thing. The first thing that I would not have done was to go to university right out of high school. Okay. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't finished growing. But if you had not followed that exact same path, then a lot of the things you love about your life now probably wouldn't have been. Yeah, but I, I, I just don't, I think... Uh, I don't know. I come from a generation where you were forced to make decisions really fast. And they assumed that, you know, and, and when you came out of out of high school, the expectation was you went to university or you were a failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Right. So I just wish I hadn't done it. I wish I'd seen more of the world. I wish I'd gotten to know myself a little bit more because I jumped around academically. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who I was. I, you know, I, I did fine arts, then I did English, then I did theater, you know, and I ended up working in the government, which I hate. Anyway, I, I it's going to end up being a therapy session so i don't want to put our listeners through that but i have a good story this week wonderful yeah 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 yeah. i you hinted at it with me um before we recorded and i'm very eager to hear this one well the story i'm going to tell you tonight is about the settlement at lake angie cooney oh and i love the name angie cooney does it sound like my name is angie cooney i'm going to have to ask you to fill out these two forms there's pencils over there fill these two forms out and then bring them back to the desk it sounds like a character that would be on, um, like, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yeah, Angie Cooney. Angie Cooney's coming over. She's going she's gonna to clean up my closet and take out all the dead bodies. It sounds a bit dirty. That doesn't sound it, at all like Mr. Rogers, that voice. I digress. Uh, where is Lake Angie Cooney? Lake Angie Cooney is deep in the wilds of none of it. Wow. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to talk about, um, it's kind of like Roanoke. It's the disappearance of an entire community. And I didn't know about this one, uh, at all. This is not what I thought you were going to talk about. So, you know, when I was just doing that girl named Angie Cooney, that imitation, I was echoing the fact that I went to, uh, an allergy uh, test last week. Yes. And I find it very frustrating when you go to a doctor and before you can see the doctor, it's a specialist you've never seen before. They make you fill out this fucking form that takes like a half an hour. I love filling it out and I'm not even joking. They give you the clipboard and the pencil and then you got to sit and I didn't have my reading glasses and it was just a nightmare and it was so many questions. It was unbelievable. But do you know what I did last week? Because you sarcastically commented on the photo and I laughed my tits off. (laughs) 
I ate shrimp for the first time in my life. Yes, and I asked you if you were eating them at Montana's. No, that's not what you said. You didn't make it a question. You said, it's really nice to see that you chose Montana's. <laughs> that's right. And for people who don't know, I don't know where how widespread this chain is. It's a big box store chain. It's just a few steps up from being fast food. It's full of kids and families. It's that kind of place. The meals are pre-prepared, I think, or at the very least frozen. Nothing. Mm. Yeah. And they're famous for their all-you-can-eat rib night. So that should tell you that right there. Yeah. yeah there but anyway, go. we were in the vicinity of Montana's. We were close by. It was getting late. And I knew I wanted to have shrimp because the allergist had said that my allergy was gone, that it had, it was gone. Oh, great. Yeah. In middle age, your body changes. So I had shrimp for the first time. I know I shouldn't have had them at Montana's, but it was any port in a storm kind of event. And I'm glad I did. It was Montana's? It was Montana's. Oh, I was jo- I was being facetious. No, it was Montana's. That's Montana's. <laughs> Why would you go there? Because it was the only place open that late, and we were there. We were right by it. Well, of course, and you and you probably didn't have a very good experience. Well, it was a bit rubbery, but I got to taste it, and it was really weird to bite something that and look at something and consume something that you your whole life had associated with making you very, very sick to the point that you could die. Was this also like lobster and All crab? And- so I still haven't had lobster, crab, or scallops. And everybody tells me scallops are going to be a big win. Oh, scallops are wonderful. Please, when you go to try your next seafood dish, try Denny's. But you know what everyone's telling me? And I'm not I'm not kidding, Dan. I'm not fucking kidding. And I know you're going to make fun of me for it. But everybody is kind of pushing me in the direction of Red Lobster. Oh, it's okay. They said that they prepare lobster and stuff very well. And it's, you know, the flavors are good. So... Yeah, it's it's okay. The keg also does a good lobster. I love the keg. I don't know if they have that. All. We're talking about specifics. Anyway, folks, I just want to let you know, because I knew you were worried, that I, Riley Stewart, am now able to consume lobster. So let's go to the wilds of Nunavut, Dan. It's November 1930. The body of water in question, Lake Anjikuni, covers about 191 square miles. Not a big lake. A oh, decent size lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're in Canada. We got big lakes here. That's nothing. That particular body of water is located 500 miles northwest of the famous port of Churchill, which is in a province in Canada called Manitoba. And it's situated on Hudson's Bay, which is a very famous body right. of water. Um, we also have a very large department store that's struggling here in Canada called the Hudson's Bay Company. Mm-hmm. The location is extraordinarily desolate. There's fucking nothing there. I've seen pictures of it. It's a lake with a lot of fir trees around it, and it's flat. And it's cold. The, the whole, the, the whole, the whole province is that way. Well, there's some very pretty parts of Nunavut. This is not one of them. Okay. Was that your stomach? No, I hear what you're talking about, but it's not me. That was weird. The average temperature in the Lake Anjikuni area is about minus 10 degrees Celsius, and for our imperial friends, that's about 14 degrees Fahrenheit. In the Lake Anjikuni area, the Inuit, who are the um, indigenous peoples mm-hmm. that occupy that area, traditionally do not live there year-round. They visit that area to trap and hunt when the weather is agreeable. Mm-hmm. Now, this is very interesting. In my research, I came across this. Most people associate the Inuit people only with the north, and particularly Canada's north. But I didn't know that their traditional territory extends from the Bering Sea all the way through Canada's north, right through Greenland. Yes. 
so the Inuit people are uh, very heavily represented in Greenland. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Inuit are a lovely, lovely, lovely indigenous peoples. The research I did, just friendly, outgoing, um, strong family, community traditions, and also very rich oral traditions. Mm-hmm. And their stories and legends are really great. I would love to read them to you tonight. I can't, so I urge the listeners to go out there and search some of them down. They're really great. And most of the stories focus on explaining the origins of animals, natural phenomena, how the world got to be the world that we know it to be now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk now about this specific story. Enter a fur trapper named Joseph LaBelle. Now, uh, folks, if you're from my part of the world, which is Canada, the fur trade is a very big issue here in the infancy of this country. The fur trade was a staple. So we have a fur trapper, a French guy named Joseph LaBelle, and he's made his way to the Lake Anjikuni Inuit settlement. There's a little village there. And he hopes to find shelter and food. And the reason is, is because it's become very cold. The weather has become very inhospitable. The temperatures were extreme and he really needed to find some warmth and shelter. Mm-hmm. The area was experiencing a lower than normal cold front. So the temperature had plummeted. LaBelle knew because he was an experienced trapper. He had been doing this for his whole life that he should find shelter if he wanted to survive. Right. So he headed in the direction of Lake Anjikuni. Now, reports vary on this. There's a lot of stories out there. Some say that the village housed 30 people. Some say it housed 2,000 people. 2,000 is a lot. That's like a major settlement. 30 seems to be the general consensus. So for tonight, we're going to assume that the village was about 30 people, which is not unusual for an Inuit community. So I do have some experience. Uh, I've been up north to Iqaluit, which is the capital of Nunavut. And I've also had a chance to work with a lot of uh, Inuit students over the years. And that is sort of the typical size. You have to remember that these these are traditionally nomadic peoples. They went where the food went. They were often, they would live in family clans. If you get too big, it becomes hard to feed everybody and to survive. So they would stay in these smaller groups, still connected to maybe a, a, a wider network. But yes, you're, you're bang on. So the Anjikuni village was an established, functioning, self-sufficient community and had been there for some time. And it consisted of both huts and tents, so some more permanent structures, as well as tents. And I should note that Joseph LaBelle had been there many times before, and he acknowledged that the villagers were extremely friendly, welcoming, they loved to share what they had, and he had stayed there for many days on many occasions in the past. So Joseph LaBelle is, is in his canoe, it's in the middle of the night. He finally reaches the shores of the village where the village is located he beaches his canoe and he begins to approach the community when he finally reaches the village proper it is completely silent and labelle in his explanation remarked that he instantly felt that something was wrong something was amiss what time of year was this it's winter but he's in his canoe so it's, it must be a, a, a river that runs yeah the water hadn't frozen so it's, it is, and it's pitch black. I guess that's where I was going with this. I'm, it's dark. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the summer, it doesn't ever set, right? Usually when he would approach the village, the dogs, which every Inuit community would have, would begin to bark. There was not a sound. So he's really suspicious. He begins to very cautiously approach the community and he, ex- he explores first one dwelling, then another, and then another. The villagers are all gone. 
He can't figure out what the hell is going on. He performs a very thorough search and confirms after about an hour that not a single solitary soul remains in that village. Two dogs approach him as he passes by. They're tethered and clearly starving. Mm. So he sets them free. He notices that the embers of a cooking fire remain. And he also finds a pot with scraps of burned stew still smoldering within it. So someone was just there. Someone has been there in the recent future. Recent future. In the recent past. Another thing, and this is an important thing, food, clothing, and weapons, namely rifles, are still in the huts. And knowing the way the people up north live, they would never leave their weapons behind. You just don't do that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a harsh environment. It's a harsh climate. You need to have your weapons with you. Mm -hmm. Many of the huts had been left open to the cold. The doors were wide open, which would never have occurred if the villagers had been there because heat is such a precious commodity. And once you have your dwelling heated, you want to keep that heat protected and you want to keep it enclosed. And this, he knew, was a, a red flag. Now, in one of the uh, dwellings, he found a sealskin coat that was in the midst of being repaired, and a needle was still protruding halfway in the material, as if whoever had been working on the coat had just abruptly left their work. Weird. Now, I'm going to read you a little passage. It's longer than what I usually read, but this is his testimony verbatim about what he saw and what occurred. Okay? There were six tents made out of skin. I'll admit that when I f went into the first tent, I was a little jumpy. But just looking around, I could see the place hadn't known any human life for months, and I expected to find corpses inside, but there was nothing there but the personal belongings of a family. A couple of deer parkers were in one corner. Fishing deer bones were scattered about. There were a few pairs of boots, an iron pot, greasy and black. Under one of the parkas, I found a rifle. It had been there so long, it was all rusty. The whole thing looked as if it had just been left that way by people who expected to come back, but they hadn't come back. I went outside and looked over the rest of the camp. I can tell you I was puzzled. I figured there had been about 25 people in the camp, but all signs showed that the place hadn't been lived in for some time. I found the other tents in a similar state, and I tried to figure out where those Eskimos had gone to. They hadn't moved to a new territory, or they would have taken their equipment, especially their defense items and their dogs. Well then, I thought of the Eskimos' evil spirit, Tungasak who was an ugly man's face with two long tusks sticking up from each side of the nose. So that was LaBelle's testimony. I find it weird that on one hand, there's signs that someone has just been there, right? The, the embers, the stew mm -hmm. pot. But on the other, you have two dogs that have obviously been starving. So yes. this person, obviously, who, whoever was there wasn't feeding them. Or maybe this person wasn't the person like that. Maybe that was not someone from the, the settlement because all the other evidence seems to suggest that 
this place had been empty for quite some time. The rusted rifle, the doors left open, the, mm-hmm. the state of those dogs, etc. So I find that really weird. And you're not alone. No one's ever been able to reconcile those two observations, right? One observation is that, well, there's a, a, a fire still smoldering. Well, a fire's not going to continue to smolder for months. And yet it looks like someone has recently been there. And yet it looks like people haven't been there for a while. So there's these two issues sort of combating. LaBelle mm-hmm. was completely mystified. There was no conceivable reason why they would have left the village. They just wouldn't do that. Also, there was tons of food in the village. Tons. There was no need for them to be out hunting. There was The, the food was plentiful. It was there. No visible push factors for them to leave. Exactly. And... Again, if they had left in an emergency situation, they would surely have taken their weapons with them. Weapons were too precious. Yeah, well, it's a very dangerous territory. Like you you sort of touched upon it, polar bears, right, which are extremely vicious. and Wolves. Uh, wolves, muskox, which are, they're not going to eat you, but if they hit, it's like being hit by a tank, the muskox, right? Yeah. You got those big wooden domes of a head. A very dangerous place. So you've got to have a way to defend yourself. That That, you're right. And guns aside, it's also very cold. And these people exist in the cold and they would know to stay put in a cold snap. They would not go out wandering unless they absolutely had to. I bet you're wondering this, and so I'll put your your curiosity to rest. There were no footprints indicating a mass exodus. I was going to ask you that. Mm -hmm. I was wondering it too when I was first reading this. There was nothing to indicate that the whole tribe had left en masse. There were no signs of a struggle of any kind. There was no blood. There were no weapons, no bloody knives, nothing. And everything that they owned was kind of just left where they, right? Like if they had canoes or whatever that was there, their clothes, their, yeah. Everything they had was still there. Yeah. Now, LaBelle, understandably, was so unnerved by what he found that he would not shelter in the village. He just was like, nope, he stopped to get warm and that was it. Mm -hmm. So cold and weary, he took the surviving dogs with him, the dogs that he had found, and he made his way to the local telegraph office and reported what he had seen. And apparently it was quite a hike. Some people say it was like almost 100 miles that he had to go, but that sounds improbable to me, but whatever. Anyway, he got there. And an emergency dispatch was sent from that office to the closest RCMP barracks. Folks out there who aren't from Canada or aren't from this part of the world, it's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It's kind of famous. If you see a lot of Canadian propaganda, you'll all often see the Mounties. They're dressed in red and they have these weird kind of Smokey the Bear hats on. I think it's probably one of the things most people in the world that are familiar with Canada would know. Yeah, that and probably Indigenous art. And Celine Dion. Oh God, yeah. My heart will go on, Riley. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of famous things like Dan Aykroyd, who wrote Ghostbusters. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alanis, Alanis Morissette. And who's that slutty woman that's the country singer? I feel like a woman. Who's that? Oh, she's not slutty. Well, she looks slutty. Shania Twain. Yeah. No, she doesn't. She wears leopard skin. Well, that doesn't mean she's that. She wears leopard skin. Powerful woman. Le- leopard skin bodysuit. My mama told me about women like that. Oh, my God. She said, Riley. Don't ever, ever hook up with a woman wearing a leopard skin bodysuit because it will end in tears and you will get herpes. <laughs> and I have lived by those words ever since. But don't you own a leopard bodysuit? I do not. Could you imagine me in a leopard bodysuit? Could you imagine? Yes. I would look like a fabric accident. Like, it would just, that's, I'm, I'm upset thinking about it. I would love to see you in that. Yeah, you're never, you're never gonna. <laughs> okay. The RCMP barracks received the message and they decide to dispatch a group to go and investigate. 
it's five of them. There are five RCMP officers. And on their way to the Lake Anjikuni site, they uh, seek shelter in the night at a, in a shack. It's kind of a shanty. And I didn't know this, but in the north, there's a lot of shacks that have been erected. It's kind of like when you go cross-country skiing and there's little warmth huts everywhere. Throughout the north are huts that just anybody can use. They're camps. And if nobody's there, you can just go and use it. Well, along trade routes, right? Uh, Establish routes to get from one community to the other. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, you could just, if there's a storm, you just hole up there and make a fire and, and wait it out. In that particular location, in that building, there was also a trapper and his two sons, and he was named Laurent. And uh, when the RCMP asked uh, that group if they had seen anything unusual in the area, Laurent and his son said, that they had seen a strange light in the sky. Oh boy, here we go. In the vil- in the vicinity of the Lake Anjikuni village. Interesting. It's always that. Now, they were sure, the Laurents, that it was not the Aurora Borealis because they were f- living and working in the north and they knew what the northern lights looked like, but they said it was something else entirely. And they said that the object had been moving through the sky in the direction of Lake Anjikuni, the village. It had changed shape turning from a cylinder to an object that was shaped like a bullet as it moved through the sky. Wow. So ni- this is 1930? Yeah. Interesting. Right? So the UFO hysteria hadn't even hit yet. No. Mm-hmm. No. And this is a guy who's in the far north who's absolutely not looking for fame if he's a trapper in in the wilds. The, the French trapper. And, and, and to explain to our, our listeners... Uh, the Aurora Borealis will look like a green, bluish, yellow You don't bands. have to explain to our listeners. Everybody's seen... I don't think everyone has. Everyone's necessary. seen pictures of the Northern Lights. I don't think that's a fair statement. I Seriously? Think there's many people who wouldn't... If you live in the South... I, I think it's just the Southern Lights as well, right? I think they're called something else in Australia, but... Or in, in the Southern Hemisphere, but, but not everyone might... They might have... They might know the word, but they might not know what they actually look like. They look like dancing waves of light in the sky, like a cloud that's alive, Okay, uh, full of light. I think our listeners have probably seen photos of that. I assume they have, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. All right, so the RCMP officers, the five of them, finally make it to the village where LaBelle uh, has, has gone to meet them because he was at the telegraph office, and then he sets out to meet them at the village. They searched the village and confirmed without a doubt that no one was there. Then they discovered nearby, and LaBelle hadn't found this yet, an Inuit burial ground containing nothing but empty graves. What? Now, just so you know, it's without a doubt, the Inuit community would never disturb the graves of their relatives. It was considered the ultimate taboo to do that. And the RCMP concluded animals could not have done it. The ground was too hard. It was cold. Right. And it would also require tools to exhume the bodies. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the way that bar- bodies are buried there are through in cairns, right? Like the, they no. pile rocks on top. No? No, no. These were actually buried in the ground. So th- this is not, this is low enough um, in the, what's the? Um, Permafrost? Longitude? Latitude? Latitude. Uh, yeah. Well, so they, they actually dug into the permafrost or there yes. is no permafrost there. Okay. So I don't know. There's not that much specific information, but they said that to dig there, you needed tools. The bodies were gone. And this is even worse. The marker stones for each of those bodies, because they would mark them with stones, had been piled up neatly behind the graves. So it was very intentional. Weird. The RCMP found seven sled dogs dead 
about 300 feet from the village and it was obvious that they had died of starvation. Now, they weren't tied up. Why had the dogs starved when there was so much food easily accessible in the village? Remember I said the doors were open and the food was there. You could just go in and get it. Right. After a two-week investigation, the RCMP concluded that the villagers had been gone for about two months. I guess they used whatever rudimentary forensics they had back then. Sure. If that were the case, then who was responsible for the embers that LaBelle had found, which you remarked on earlier? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I should also note that during the course of the investigation, a number of the RCMP officers involved reported witnessing strange lights in the sky. They passed back and forth overhead, and they were described as being blue and pulsating. Now, the RCMP speculated that the villagers had been out hunting and had perished in a particularly virulent blizzard. Mm -hmm. But women and children never participate in the hunt. That just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. In in Inuit tradition, and I've heard um, Inuit people commenting on this, they say that would never have happened. That just, that's not the way it goes. A rumor also circulated that a lone, lost 10-year-old boy wandered into an Inuit camp he never spoke a single word, and the tribe, that particular group, took him in and cared for him. And many believed and said that he had come from the Lake Anjikuni village, but this could never be proven. Okay. And whatever he had seen had caused such trauma within him that he was unable to speak his entire life. Wow. Oh, man. Right? Wow. This poor little kid. But that's just a rumor. There's no confirmation on that. Okay. All right. So the, the, the boy even existed, you mean? Yeah. We don't know, but it's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta love stories like that. In November 1930, mm -hmm. the first official account of this mystery was published by a gentleman named Emmett E. Keller. And his article that was picked up by a number of other papers was called, very succinctly, I love this era, Tribe Lost in Barons of North. That's all he called it. There's no embellishment there. Yeah. News agencies grabbed it, and it was uh, it was quite popular. Now, something interesting about the article, whenever it um, was reprinted in papers, there was a copyright notice under it with his name on it. And according to the research I've done, reporters don't copyright their stories. Authors copyright their stories. So just keep that in the back of your head, because there's a lot of people who think that this is just a fictionalization. Now we're going to shift gears, Mr. Dan. So uh, can I uh, can I ask you a question? Absolutely. And, and, and tell me if I'm jumping the gun again. Is there any Inuit oral history on this? Like, do they talk about this incident? They do not. Hmm. But a lot of the tribes in that particular time, in that particular location, were quite... Isolated? From each other. Very good. Thank you. Well, and they would be, right? I, as I was saying that, actually, why would they have it if they weren't there to see it or hear about it, otherwise, you know, other than from these, these people? Okay, I'm going to shift gears now. So we're going to go into legends and monsters and myths. The Inuit peoples that lived in the Lake Anjikuni region spoke of a spirit called Torngasak. Yeah, you mentioned him earlier. Yeah, and he is the master of whales and seals. Oh. And he's the leader, the sort of the, the Odin equivalent of a group of gods known as the Tornat. And the Tornat are basically guardian spirits. Now, as I mentioned before, Inuit people stretch all the way into Greenland. And in Greenland, he is actually considered to be the most powerful of all gods. He's also recognized as the mediator between gods and men. He's a sky spirit, so he came down from the sky. 
and he's recognized as an entity you don't trifle with. When plans would go awry, when something bad would happen, Torngasak is often the entity that would be blamed. Now, physically, he's all over the map. He's described as a creature that looks like a bear. Also, and I love this one for some reason. I don't know why. I think it's funny. I just do. A small creature the size of a finger. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Uh, it reminds me of that famous episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer when they um, summon that demon, remember? And it's a little tiny creature they just step on. Never watched it. Oh, it was a good show in its day. It does not age well. Oh, no. Okay. So I shouldn't go back and... No, but it doesn't age well. And he's also described as an invisible being. Now, women in uh, Inuit culture who functioned as Angakut, and Angakut are the equivalent in Inuit culture of shamans. Okay. So they are the, these these women have these these spiritual powers. They are the spiritual um, representatives in Healers? the tribe. Yeah, and they do a lot of other stuff. They would receive a guardian spirit from Tongasak that they could summon in times of dire need. So the shamans were able to call upon the spirit that would be granted to them by this deity. Now, this is really cool. Lovecraft references this god in The Call of Cthulhu. Oh. Torngasak is in there. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not going to go into that because I think we're overly obsessed right now as a sort of a culture with Cthulhu. It suddenly became such a thing, right? Well, yeah. And it was there all along. It just suddenly was thrown into the spotlight. He was just really good at at drawing in all the different mythologies. And, and, and making uh, crazy creatures. Like crazy, like Clyde Barker creatures, like crazy ass motherfucking creatures. Mm -hmm. The Inuit in the vicinity of Anjikuni always wore charms to ward off Tongasak. And LaBelle in his statement stated that as he moved through the deserted village, the legend of Tongasak kept invading his thoughts. It would just come into his mind unbidden and unwelcome and he couldn't shake it. It just kept coming, this idea of, of Tongasak. Now, we're going to get into a little bit more about spirituality and mythologies and things. Inuit peoples believed that humans could move easily between the physical and spiritual worlds. I never knew that. I think it's fascinating. They also believed that humans could transform into animals and vice versa. Mm-hmm. There were also invisible entities that could transform into any form of their choosing. And the Inuits believed that only water existed when the earth began. There was nothing but water. And then stones and rocks fell from the sky, and that's how the world was born. Humans and animals lived together as one species and shared each other's forms because they could transform easily from one, uh, one form to another. Words were created and they contained powerful magic, and whenever they were used, strange things would occur. I love that, because it's kind of, a, kind of relates a bit today, when I was thinking about stuff that's going on, and social media, and all the crap that's going on. Words contain powerful magic, and when they are used, strange things occur. I like that. The pen is mightier than the sword, whether it's written or spoken, boy oh boy, aren't they the most powerful thing? And dangerous. Oh, we got nothing more? I thought you were going to wax philosophical for me. I, I can. No, I think you're, you're right. And I think it's often, um, it's, a, it's something that a lot of people have taken for granted now because we're so literate. Mm-hmm. And um, you're seeing it now with, like you said, misinformation and demagogues who are skillful at the use of wordcraft. You know, through, oh, yeah. Uh, dog whistles and, and things like that. And, and, uh, and one thing I've learned too with, my working with Inuit 
First Nation here in Canada, peoples, is the wisdom that has been passed down over the centuries still stands to this day. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a deep, deep wisdom there with those folks. And that would be one example of that. There, I waxed poetical for you. Like that? Or not, sorry, I waxed philosophical for you. Like that? Sure. Rate it, rate it, rate it out of a scale of uh, 1 to 12. I'll give you a 7. Great. Out of 1 to 12? Whoever puts that scale? I thought you were 1 to 10. That's called the Norwegian-Dutch scale. Okay, well, whatever. It's created in 1938 by Hans Lieberman and his brother, Sandy. Lieberman is not a Dutch name. That's a German name. They immigrated. Okay, so Tongasak, uh, they believed, might have something to do with the disappearance of the villagers. That somehow they might have angered him, and in retaliation, he erased them from the face of the earth. Mm. I know he's a he's a vengeful god, but funny things. Funny thing is that when I was reading about Tongasak, that's not usually his mo. Right. He's he he will do stuff, but not wipe out an so, entire and culture. And who thinks this? Who who think like who thinks that maybe it was him? Other Inuits, uh, uh, Inuit people, people who just theorized about this. Labelle thinks that. Right. Thought that he's dead now, but he thought that. And to be clear, and to be clear, Labelle did exist. Oh, very much so. There's pictures of him. Yeah. So yeah. it's not like this story was completely fabricated. No, no, no. He existed. And it's funny that he looks exactly like what you think he's going to look like. He looks like a trapper. Bald. No, no, no. He's just all bundled up and he's got eye patch. huge mittens. Why would he have an eye patch? Shoulder he's pads. He's not a privateer. Okay. This is getting silly and you're ruining my story. Gold buckles on his shoes. On January 17th, 1931, the RCMP released a report of the investigation of this incident, and that had been conducted by Sergeant J. Nelson. When speaking with local traders, Nelson confirmed that LaBelle was a real person who had worked in northern Manitoba. Oh, However, no one in the region had heard of the village in question or of its disappearance. Nelson therefore concluded that the story was not real. However, Records indicate that the RCMP did indeed locate an abandoned settlement at that particular location. Oh, well, there we go. I should also note that there are tons of reports of alien craft being sighted in northern locations and in that particular location. Hmm. And the craft are routinely described as being blue, pulsating figures, and also bullet-like that travel very fast from horizon to horizon. Mm. So this is not the first time that we have UFOs or alien craft being mentioned. It's it's very common in, in northern communities. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the um, Inuit peoples believe they were sky spirits, right? Yeah, I could see that. Well, that would make sense for them, right? So no traces of the settlement have ever uh, been found. That's it. That's all. Some people are firm believers that this was just, uh, this was all just drummed up just for sensationalism's sake and just to, you know, make a, an interesting story. A lot of other people feel that it really did occur. So, and there are Inuit people who say, my grandmother knew someone from that village or, you know, my father once hunted and ran into that and stayed a night in that village. So, it's not that everybody uniformly says the village never existed. No, there are people who say that it did exist and, and suddenly didn't exist. And Dan, that's it. That's all I have this week. Short and sweet. I, uh, well, I, I find that interesting. It makes sense. This is, you have to understand with these people that they didn't, the concept of town and village 
is not the same for them as it was for us. They were nomadic and, and moving people. The fact that they are living in, in towns and villages now, or even starting, it would have it would have been occurring even then, was went against their instincts. It went against uh, their culture and it was very tough. So to say that people hadn't heard of a, a small 30-person community, that's not a stretch, you know? I mean, it's just so odd. You have to take this LaBelle guy, obviously that's the first leap of faith. You have to take him at his word that what he saw actually was. And it's a lot of strange details, right? The the conflicting evidence of the meal and the dogs. The dogs the are a big one, yep. The graves are a, a really good one too because it, it makes it spooky. It makes it, why would, why would anybody bother to go to that much trouble to exhume bodies from very cold earth? The trappers who also claim to see the lights in the sky at a time in history where that wouldn't have been Certainly not being done to gain any sort of fame or fortune. Um, I mean, aircraft are in their infancy at this point still. Oh, yeah, they're not up north. I mean, they're not. Right? And they're certainly not moving fast. You can tell what a, like a biplane would be at that time. And they're not up north. Where the hell would they land, right? So that's odd. And if it's aliens, which that sort of suggests, well, why would they wipe out a community? And why would they, why would someone then go down and destroy those graves? Why would they have a meal, apparently? Why weren't? The, why did the dogs not go into the village and eat? Maybe because they were afraid. Yeah, exactly. Of what? Maybe it yeah. was Tongasak. Right? Yeah. This is a good one because it could be both. It could be, well, it could be completely made up. It could be aliens. It could be... Vengeful deity? Yeah, vengeful deity. I mean, this almost has like a Mary Celeste vibe to it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You just, you don't know. And there's no, there's no clear direction in which to point and go, ah, it must be that. There really isn't. I love the fact though, that it's, uh, it's slightly macabre with the graves that when I first came across that detail in my research, I thought to myself, well, that changes the flavor a little bit, doesn't it? I almost wonder then too, if it could be something like some sort of madness that set in, like. Perhaps they got poisoned and they went kind of... They would have found the bodies. What if they went into the water? I guess, but they still would have found the bodies. It's a lake. Oh, yeah, it was a lake. Right. Not a river. Yeah. I don't know, Dan. I don't know. I think this we have to just leave this one in the mystery box. Well, I'll say this too, though. Go ahead and look at Canada's north. Go and look at Google Maps. How big it is? It's freaking Huge. Oh, it's vast. It's just vast. Yeah. Can Canada is big. Like the South is it, like where we live in the Southern part of the country is, is big. You go and look at the North. I think it's bigger. Like if you go above the Arctic, I think that's the vast bulk of our country is the North to get lost in there. Really easy. The amount of, I think that I don't even think they've counted all the, the lakes. I do know that it still has not yet been properly mapped out. Mm -hmm. There are rivers that are unknown. There's uh, lakes that are unknown. I know that some of the satellite imagery is not exactly accurate because I don't know that they've been spending resources scanning those areas. In the 1930s especially, very easy for people to disappear. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it gives me um, an incredible amount of respect for people that were working in the fur trade. What a tough life. Oh, and I, oh my God, yeah. And I do want to totally self-sufficient. I do want to say this too, because some people might be wondering this, what maybe it was another band, right, that came and wiped them out. They weren't a warring people. 
they were are not a warring people. Yeah. I remember talking to one of my students about that and he he came like he was from an area called Pond Inlet, had been born and raised there. He was saying how he culturally fighting and and uh, individuals is one thing, but as a band, as a they don't do it. They don't do it because you can't. I think the um I think the indigenous communities in the American West had issues. Well, uh, many First Nations ward. That's what I meant, yeah. But the Inuit, not, not. just in the West, but in the East as well. Like you yeah. think of the Algonquin and the Iroquois and all that. But in the North, they couldn't because the real adversary was nature. Yeah. And they had to band together to survive. If they had started to fight like that, they all would have ended up being wiped out. And the community was an efficient machine all geared towards survival. Everyone had something to do. Everyone knew their place. It was an efficient machine. They've been doing this for hundreds of years and they had it down to a science. Much like this podcast. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. Anyway, that is the story of Lake Anjikuni, um, another famous disappearing settlement. And people love to quarrel over this one. Like I said, some claims it happened, some claim that it did not. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it did or didn't. It's a great story. I love that, that we had a chance to share that with our listeners. And um, I guess just think what you think about it. I'm glad you, no, I'm glad you shared it. And it's neat to to bring some of those stories to the cast. Yeah, it's the first time we've dipped our toe into Inuit culture on the... Yeah. Do you know what I'm doing, going to be doing soon? Uh, maybe I'll just do this as my next one. I don't know. But I want to do the, uh, the, the Pueblo, the Mesa, the Haunted Mesa. I don't know. It's those American um, uh, indigenous population. I don't know who it is, but they have. I know who the main. Yeah, yeah. They I have those those like, those dwellings in the cliffs. Yes, it's that, and they're apparently really haunted. Oh, okay, cool. So I'd li- I'd like to do those. Do you know what I'm thinking of doing? It's funny you mentioned that. I'm thinking of doing an episode on the mystery of the kitar. Is it a kitar or is it a pianotar? And we'll get to the bottom of it next week on the wired. I mean the weird. You are just you. And we'll all have to contend with that. Anyway, uh, that's my story this week. A little more brief than I'm used to, but I um, I like the story and I wanted you to know about it. I don't think anybody out there has heard, ever heard of Lake Anjikuni. Well, I think uh, you, you just said there were people who talked about it. Yeah, but Redditors. Everyone knows about Aurora Borealis, but nobody knows about this well, story. Well, if you've watched, like, Disney movies, the Aurora Borealis is in Disney movies. I mean... Which one? Name one Disney movie it's in. It's in um, Pocahontas. Nope. It is. I know that movie super well. That movie doesn't even exist. It's also in Aladdin, when they do the magic carpet ride. Well, that's in the desert. How's that? That's not the Aurora Borealis. They do a, a magic genie. carpet ride across the whole planet. Okay, uh, I don't need to talk about that. It doesn't matter. Um, Folks, thank you for joining us once again on this wonderful madcap journey known as The Weird. We're so glad that you travel with us each and every week. I know that we say it every week, but we mean it. We mean it. We love that you listen to us. Every time Dan reports to me about how many downloads we've had, I get all excited and I run around screaming and it's just a joyous moment. Well, we've said this before. We're surprised because I don't think you and I ever expected to have a global listenership. I think we were just hoping we would have a few people that would make it worth our while doing this. Yeah, but once we had Bhutan, we knew we were gold. Yeah, and I just got to say this. They haven't listened again. We lost the the listener from Bhutan. I like to think they were in Bhutan on business. Okay. Right? And went back to wherever 
it was home. I wonder what their business would be in Bhutan. I wonder what Bhutan's all about. I wonder what it's like prime industry is. I'm going to have to do some searching. Rubber? I don't know. I don't even know where it is. Where is it? Bhutan is like, I believe, east of India. Oh, God only knows then. It could be natural resources of some kind. You're actually looking it up? Yeah, I just, I think I'm right. And I want to see. Bhutan. It is just east of India, north of Bangladesh, east of Nepal. Actually, it's neighboring Nepal. China is directly to the north of Bhutan. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, neighbors with Nepal, Bangladesh, India, Myanmar, formerly Burma, and China. So since you're there, look up at some primary industry, please. I have to know. It's probably resources. It's a very mountainous area. Maybe it's mining. Uh, hmm, let's look this up. That's not going to tell me. Cement, wood products, processed fruits, I was right, alcoholic beverages, calcium carbide, and tourism. Okay. I love cement was the first one. And apparently it's a ease of doing business rank is 89th in the world. Okay. So it's, it's, it's doing well. It's a, it's a good place to do business. Unemployment only sitting at 3.2%. Oh, it's a prosperous, it's a prosperous little country. It's doing well. Good. Well, good on you, Bhutan. I'm proud of you. Yeah, good. I'm, I am too. And next time I need cement, I know where to go. Yeah. Bhutanese cement, the only cement for the serious construction worker. There you go. Okay, Dan, we've um, we've uh, we've taken up enough of their time. Folks, we'll see you next week with another tale of the weird. Um, as you know, share it, scream it from the top of your lungs every time you go outside because we want to keep building. And uh, that's all I have to say. So good night from Riley. And good night from Dan. Uh... And Bhutan. With Canada's great undeveloped regions so abundantly supplied with lakes, streams, and ponds, it's important that every Mountie be an expert swimmer and small boat handler. These lads know they will save far more lives by good rescue ability than they ever will with a gun. Mm-hmm.